Hey, Christ Chapel, I'm so glad you're here worshiping with us today, and we're gonna continue to worship as we take up an offering. For those of you who give online, thank you so much for giving, but if you'd like to give today, right now, you can do that in one of two ways. First, you can text the code on the screen. It'll send you a link that's very easy for you to give, or if you brought a physical gift, you can drop that in a receptacle outside of your worship venue at the end of our service. Now, I wanna give a special welcome back to all of you who joined us for the first time on Easter. To have you back again with us means so much. And I think you'll be grateful you're here for the start of our new series called, What's On Your Mind? We made the decision to do this series so that we could talk about the pandemic that followed the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is mental health. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that what we've lived through this past year has brought uncertainty and fear and isolation at levels that many of us had never experienced before. The circumstances we've had to find our way through have tried and worn on and even shaken some of us at our core. That's why mental health is a high priority for us to talk about as a family. So with this series, we have a few important goals I'd like for you to know. First, I want us to begin having conversations about mental health so that we all know it's okay to not be okay. Next, I want us to remove the stigma that lurks around mental health issues. Silence on the topic only strengthens the stigma, which is why we'll be talking about it openly and all together. We also want to bring to light some specific mental health issues that are prevalent in our own community and address how we think about and even engage with the people in our lives who may be struggling. And I want us to finish the series knowing how we can continue to address and even enhance our own mental health. All of this we'll talk about from a biblical perspective. And to kick that off, we have a very special guest, Dr. Frank Turek. Dr. Turek is the president of crossexamine.org and is one of the leading apologists and cultural commentators in our country. Today, he'll begin our series by answering the question, does truth exist? And I know what you may be wondering, does truth have anything to do with mental health? Well, I want you to lean in today because truth actually has everything to do with mental health. If we don't have a solid base of knowing what's true, or if we don't hold the belief that absolute truth even exists, then we're missing the foundation we need to draw from for our sense of reality, identity, and purpose. Truth is crucial to mental health. So today, we're gonna start with that foundation. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad we're gonna be studying this topic together over the next few weeks and hearing from our special guest today, Dr. Frank Turek. Good morning. I wanna go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is a United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade, but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, kill the Americans! As Monsor and his team are looking for the next attack, 
An insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Mansoor in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two Navy SEAL teammates lying on the roof will surely die. Monsoor yells, grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward, chest first, onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsoor is dead. His two colleagues lying on the roof receive only minor injuries because Monsoor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsoor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsoor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsoor's High School in Garden Grove, California built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsoor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident that the seals wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, just outside of San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsoor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. This is Mon Monsoor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsoor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love, said Jesus of Nazareth, than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends. Michael Monsoor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, many people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. They think that miracles don't occur, so how could a resurrection happen? This is not a reliable thing to believe, they'll say. Well, I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity's true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes, and if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity's true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. I need sound for this. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? Yeah. 
That is actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378, or it's NRB on Roku, 9 p.m., 8 p.m. here in Central Time Zone. We're also on radio every Saturday morning. Here it'd be 9 a.m. I think it is on in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, low on the FM dial, somewhere below 92 FM. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it. That's our website, crossexamine.org. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Now, how many of you were here yesterday? Where were the rest of you? We started going through this yesterday, and we said the first question, does truth exist, is important because... You hear people saying things in our culture today like there's no truth, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. Obviously, if there's no truth, Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? So we're going to deal with that question here this morning. The second question we covered yesterday, does God exist? And we showed yesterday that there really is a theistic God, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. And yesterday we established those, or that conclusion without reference to the Bible. You can show God exists without the Bible. Third question is, are miracles possible? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if miracles are not possible. But as we saw yesterday, not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible has already occurred, and even atheists are admitting the data for it. Yeah, yesterday we pointed out the greatest miracle in the Bible is what? Yeah, Genesis 1.1, the first verse of the Bible. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least believable. And we saw yesterday that even atheists are admitting the universe exploded into being out of nothing. The key question, however, is the New Testament true? Because the New Testament doesn't have a prayer if there's no truth, no God, or no miracles. But if truth exists, God exists, and miracles are possible, then we can see if we have enough evidence to conclude that the New Testament is telling us the truth about one particular event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you might as well sleep in on Sunday and do, do what you want the rest of the week, because it's not true. Even Paul said, if Christ hasn't risen, your faith is in vain. Now, I think from these points, you can go on to show that the Bible is the word of God. Why? Well, look, if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God teaches is true. Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says, okay? Jesus said the Old Testament was the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. Now, if you want to go further in this, uh, the book is available on the book table, uh, which goes through all this in great detail. I don't know if we have any more DVD sets. We probably sold them all yesterday, and we probably sold out of this book too, Stealing from God. But the entire PowerPoint presentation for this, pre for uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is available to you. If you just text the word evidence to 44222, text the word evidence, not quotes on it, just evidence to 44222. I'm going to send you everything I'm going to show you today, everything we did yesterday, and the other points we couldn't cover yesterday in a PDF form. Just check that out. Now, if you do want to get a book at the book table, I do want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? Just so you know, I've got three sons, so I need some help. Actually, they're a little bit older now. I was in the Navy many years ago, which, by the way, stands for never again volunteer yourself. Um, my, friend, my, my sons were much smarter than me. The oldest two uh, went into the Air Force, 
And so the oldest son right now is a major in the Air Force. He's an intelligence officer. In fact, he's reading your email right now. And you shouldn't be emailing in church. The second son is a KC-10 pilot. You guys know what a KC-10 is? KC-10 is a big plane that refuels other planes in flight. You've seen them. They're flying along. they got a boom coming out of the back. Other planes will come up and get gas from them as they're flying. So what we say about our middle son, Spencer, is that every day he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. <laughs> and he gets paid for it. This is every man's dream. If I got paid to pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. The third son is not in the military, but he is out of the house, so my wife and I are now empty nesters. Yeah, it took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change the locks. Do we have any empty nesters in here? Empty nesters? You notice how clean the house stays when they're gone? It's amazing. Anyway, what we're going to do here is point out what Peter said. Always be ready to give an answer for the reason that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, which is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey, all right? But we're supposed to give evidence for what we believe and why we believe it. So that's what we're about to do here right now. And what we're going to do is we're just going to cover this morning, point one, does truth exist? Are you guys ready to go? All right, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, no. If he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. You can't have, that's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. Let's try it again. I want the truth. Now that felt better, didn't it? Didn't that feel better? Well, you know, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth, I got my truth, all truth is relative. You've heard these claims, right? Well, if you don't get anything outside of what we talk about here this morning, the next two minutes is going to be worth your time because if you get this concept down, which is a thinking skill, if you get this thinking skill down, half of what you need to know, you'll already know to defend the Christian faith. Why? Because half of what you need to know is being, to, being able to quickly identify what is false. And this technique will help you discover what is false. I mean, think about how much information that comes through to you every day. How much of it is false? A lot of it. And here's a way you can detect how some false statements are really false. And to show you what a dimwit I was, I was 33 years old, I already had a master's degree, and I did not know what I'm about to show you right now. And it's so simple, okay? And this thinking skill is so simple that the best way of showing it to you is to give you an example of using it. Suppose someone were to come up to you and say, there is no truth. You hear people say this, there's no truth, right? You should ask that person a question, what should the question be? Yes, if somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, hey, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Can everybody see this is a self-defeating statement? What's a self-defeating statement? A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. 
It violates the law of non-contradiction. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say that, what would you say? You just used English to say it. And here's the thinking skill. What you do when somebody says something like this, what you want to do is you want to turn the claim on itself. Turn the claim on itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you say, is that true? All right? Let's do a few more of these because so many things that are said in our culture are literally self-defeating. And if you turn the claim on itself, you're going to see that these statements are false and therefore you can move on and try and discover something that's true, okay? You don't want to, you don't want to start living by false principles because if you do, ultimately you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt and it's no good for your mental health when you're believing false things and trying to live by them. How about this? You hear this a lot. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Somebody says there's no such thing as absolute truth. If you turn the claim on itself, what question would you ask back? Is that an absolute truth? Or you might want to say, are you absolutely sure? Right? See, because this is an absolute truth claim, claiming there are no such things as absolute truths. It's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Or it's like saying my parents had no kids that lived. Right? It defeats itself. How about this? You hear this a lot too. All truth is relative. If you turn, a, turn this claim on itself, what question would you ask back to him? Is that, a, is that a relative truth? No, that's an absolute truth again. This claim is not relative at all. It's absolutely true. My favorite self-defeating claim is this. It's true for you, but not for me. Well, Christianity may be true for you, but Buddhism's true for me. You know, you have your truth, I have my truth. You've heard this, right? What do you say to somebody who says this? Turn the claim on itself. This is also self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, hey, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me, can't be true, because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying, I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, sure. Go try that with your bank teller. Yeah, go to your bank teller and say, I'd say you know, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks your account and says, I'm sorry, I only have $6.14 in your account. It's easy to get the money. You simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? No, if it's true, there was only $6.14 in your account. That's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, if he really did, regardless of what you believe about it. In fact, a lot of times I go to churches and I ask people, do you think Christianity is true? And they say yes, and then I'll ask them why. Do you know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists? Does your faith change whether or not Jesus rose from the dead or that the Bible's telling the truth? No, your faith doesn't change a thing about those things. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? You have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground. Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. 
Hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, why is the Bible always talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. Belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is true. That's what we call apologetics. That's what we're trying to do right now. It doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It means we're giving a defense for what we believe. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you got to go from belief that to belief in or to trust in. Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called... Cody, this is a sharp congregation. That is really good. Yes, James says, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you realize the demons know that God exists better than we do? But they don't trust in him. See, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Belief that is of the head. Belief in is not just of the head, it's of the heart. We know this in relationships, don't we? I mean, when I first met my wife 35 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about belief in. Trust in. After you know that it's true, trust in it. Trust in Jesus for your salvation. Now, if you don't want to trust in Jesus for your salvation, that's fine. God will not force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. So God gives you the freedom to reject him. You've got enough reason to believe that it's true, but you don't need to trust in him. Just like you might have enough reason to believe someone's going to make a good husband or a good wife, but that doesn't mean you have to trust in that person and ask that person to marry you. How about this? You hear this a lot. There's no truth in anything but science. We get all our truth from science. If you turn the claim on itself, what are you going to say to this person? Go ahead. Yeah, you're going to say, is that a scientific truth? Can you go in the laboratory and prove that? No, that's a philosophical claim. You can't prove that in the laboratory. In fact, you can't do science without philosophy. You can't read the Bible without philosophy. You can't even understand the newspaper without philosophy. Philosophy undergirds everything we do. That's how we think. And if you can't think, you can't understand any of this stuff. In fact, you can't prove these concepts by science. You need these concepts by science. You can't prove the laws of logic by science. You need them to do science. You can't prove cause and effect by science. You need them to do science. You can't prove the laws of mathematics by science. You need them to do science. In fact, in the book, Stealing from God, we have a chapter on science in there. Here's the title of the chapter. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Why? Because all data needs to be gathered, and all data needs to be interpreted, and who does that? Scientists do that. You ever wonder why you get conflicting advice on COVID? Why is that? Because scientists have different data, and they interpret that data differently, so they come to different conclusions. And this is the same thing is true when it comes to the evidence for life. There's only two kinds of causes out there. There's natural causes and non-natural or intelligent causes. 
Well, if scientists have already ruled out intelligent causes before they've looked at the evidence, and many of them do because they're atheists, they say there can't be intelligent causes out there, the only cause that they can conclude is the cause of the effect they see is a natural cause. So they say everything happens by natural law. That's, the evidence isn't telling them that. Their philosophy's telling them that. They've already ruled out the only other op option. Science doesn't say anything scientists do. In fact, if you think about this, most of what you know and what's most important to you in life has nothing to do with science. Honey, do you love me? I don't know. Let's run an experiment. No! Or how about this? You hear this a lot. You should doubt everything. Skeptical claim. Turn the claim on itself. Somebody says you should doubt everything, what are you going to say back? Hey, should I doubt that? Why are skeptics skeptical of everything but skepticism? You ever notice they don't doubt that? By the way, he who claims to be a skeptic in one set of beliefs is a true believer in another set of beliefs. You say, oh, atheists don't have any faith. Oh, no, they do. <laughs> atheists believe that no one created the universe out of nothing. That's a positive belief. They believe that life came from non-life without intelligent intervention. That's a positive belief. They believe that all subsequent life forms occurred without any intelligence. That's a positive belief. They believe that materialism explains everything, that we're just molecular machines. We're just moist robots. Those are positive beliefs. They believe all this stuff. Everybody has to make a case for what they believe and why. Turns out that atheists can't make their case. But Christians can. Now, let me ask you guys a question. I assume most people in here are Christians, but maybe you're not. If you're not, thank you for being here. Let me just ask you a question, regardless of what you believe. Christian, atheist, anywhere in between. How many people in here sometimes doubt that what you believe is true? Look, if you don't have your hand up right now, you're probably not thinking much, right? I mean, come on, we all have doubts. I mean, I've written books on this stuff, and sometimes I wake up in the morning and I go, I don't even know if this is true. But when I start thinking about my doubts, I realize that most of my doubts are emotional. They're not intellectual. In other words, the evidence is really good for Christianity. And if I'm having a good day, everything looks fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. Good day, fine. Bad day, don't know. What's changing, me or the evidence? Me, I'm going up and down. The evidence isn't changing. I'm changing. In fact, sometimes on a college campus, when we do these I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentations, I'll see an atheist there who say, you know, Frank, I used to be a Christian, but I lost my faith. I'm an atheist. And I almost want to say to them, so? Are you telling me because your psychology has changed that God has popped out of existence? Are you telling me because you think differently now, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Your psychology is not going to tell you whether something's true or not. The evidence will. Your psychology can change with the weather, the food you eat, the moods you have, how much sleep you get. Your psychology is not going to tell you the truth about Christianity or anything else. The evidence will. So concentrate on the evidence. And if you concentrate on the evidence, I think you'll realize that Christianity is indeed true and you can start doubting your doubts. And if you start doubting your doubts, then you're back to knowing something for sure. Have you guys ever thought about doubting your doubts? I doubt it. How about this? This is the big one in our culture. You ought not judge. You're not supposed to judge, right? That's what Jesus said, didn't he? He said, don't judge. All right, well, before we get to Jesus, let me ask you this question. 
What's the problem with this claim right here? You ought not judge. Just logically. Someone says you ought not judge, what are you going to say? Yeah, you can say you're judgmental. You can say, hey, you can say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Because it is. Or you can say, if we're not to judge, then why are you judging me for judging? That's what they're doing. You say, time out, Frank. Jesus said, don't judge. Nope, he never said it. Oh, come on, Frank. It says it right there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. All right. I know this is going to sound odd, but stick with me. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew's writing the Gospel of Matthew, he says, here's chapter 7, verse 1. No. Well, when were the chapter and verse divisions added? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is a good thing because it's a big, long series of books. It'd be hard to find your way around in there without numbers, right? If Pastor Cody gets up here and says, okay, go about to the middle of your Bible, uh, you know, you'd never be able to find it, right? You got to have numbers in there. The problem is we think if there's a number in there, we can take that out and make it say whatever we want. So, when Jesus says, judge not, does he just stop right there? What does he say in Matthew chapter 7? He says, judge not, lest you be judged by the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, which by the way is a judgment, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. Is Jesus telling us not to judge here? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's actually a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that problem in your life, get it out of your life first, then go help your brother. But it would be completely ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Why? Number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made 100 judgments today just getting over here, right? Good choices from bad choices, safe choices from dangerous choices. Everybody makes judgments. Atheists make judgments. They judge there's no God. They judge the Bible's not telling the truth. They judge Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They judge there's no objective meaning to life. You're just going to die and become worm food. Have a nice day. These are all judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? That's the question. Now, I have noticed this about judging, that Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? What was their job? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. They helped run the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, to whom Rome delegated much of the legal authority to. Jesus got involved with these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And in fact, he wasn't so nice doing it. If you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter 2? Jesus makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. Sweet and gentle Jesus did this? Yes! And then in John chapter 8, he's having an argument with these politicians, the Pharisees. He's right in the middle of an argument with them. And he says to them, 
Your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. Can you imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you stop and you say, your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling, by the way. Okay? That's what Jesus did. And then in Matthew 23, these same Pharisees, these same political religious leaders, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're white. You look great on the outside, but inside you're whitewashed tombs. He says, you go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. All right? Can't we get along, boys and girls? No. He said, I'm going to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. Jesus was tough. Don't buy into the wimpified version of Jesus. Read the Gospels for yourself. In fact, why was Jesus killed? Did he get killed for skipping around saying, love your neighbor? Love your neighbor. You must die. No. He was killed Number one, because he claimed to be God. And number two, he spoke truth to power, particularly the temple priests who did not want Jesus to succeed because if he did, they were out of a job. That's why he was killed. By the way, claiming to be God was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. You might ask somebody like a Jehovah's Witness who comes to your door and says, Jesus never claimed to be God. Just ask him, if he never claimed to be God, why did they kill him? It's exactly why he was killed. I've noticed one other thing about judging. You ever notice that when you compliment somebody, which is a judgment, nobody gets upset? You know, if you say to your best friend, I really love you, you're such a wonderful person, I wish I could be like you. You think your friend's going to go, who are you to judge? Who do you think you are? No, they're never going to say that. See, I've noticed that people really don't have a problem with judging. They just have a problem with judgments they don't like. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get upset with you, you just help convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light. In fact, I submit to you that probably almost everyone here in this room in the past week, maybe even this morning, getting ready for church, you barked at somebody that you love because they told you something that's true, but you didn't like it. We want to suppress the truth. We don't want our evil deeds exposed. Now, can everybody see the difference between... This statement right here, or let me put it this way. This is a statement we started with, right? Can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? Anybody see that? All the other statements we went through shoot themselves too. All truth is relative. There are no absolutes. True for you, but not for me. All truth comes from science. You should doubt everything. You ought not judge. We could go through more. You know, you can't know anything. How do you know you can't know? I mean, you could just keep going through these statements, and they're all false because they shoot themselves. They don't meet their own standard. So the point here is, is that you can know truth, 
it does exist. And to sum it all up, the truth about truth is this. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. You can believe everything's true, but everything can't be true. You can believe the earth's flat if you want. Doesn't, it's not going to make it flat. And objective truths can't be denied without being affirmed. Suppose someone says there are no objective truths. Turn the claim on itself. Simply ask, is that an objective truth? If they say yes, then there are objective truths. If they say no, it's just my subjective opinion, then why should I believe it? Of course there's truth out there. You can't get away from it. In fact, you wouldn't go to school if there was no truth. That's what you're there to learn, right? Actually, there is one way to get away from it. And that's what you do, at least temporarily you can get away from it. You suppress it. This is a picture from one of our college events. This happened to be the University of Madison at Wisconsin, or University of what, Wisconsin at Madison where people get up and ask questions. And a lot of times when an atheist gets up to the microphone, uh, if the atheist expresses any hostility at all, I'll normally stop and ask a question of the atheist, and here's the question. And I recommend you use this question, by the way. Here's the question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, No! No, wait, you claim to be reasonable. I ask you if something were true, would you believe it? And you say no? How's that rational? How's that reasonable? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term, doing a lot of fun things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in here who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. The only way you're going to ultimately get truth is to go straight through, or contentment is to go straight through truth. And Jesus is the truth. But we want to suppress it. We want to do our own thing. In fact, let me just ask you guys a little survey question here. This is only if you're a Christian. Here's my question. I want you to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. Everybody got someone? Okay, don't, don't point at the person right now. Just, just think about the person, okay. Is the person you're thinking of right now on a relentless pursuit of truth? In other words, they want to know if Christianity is true or not. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to Christianity? How many people in here say the person I'm thinking of right now is on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Put your hand up, please. Crickets. How many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? Put your hand up, please. Look around the room. It's always 100 to 0 or 99 to 1. Most people are looking for God like a criminal's looking for a cop. So I want you to ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If they, say, if they hesitate or say no, all you can do is love them. And by the way, love does not mean approval. Sometimes you disapprove of what people do because you love them. Every parent knows this, right? If you, if you approve of everything your kid wants to do, you're not loving, you're unloving. You need to stand in the way of evil. But what you can do is love them and just be in their lives and plant seeds. Someday they may be open 
and then that will be your opportunity. So, if you want to go further into these other questions uh, and into does God exist, you can go further by getting a book or you can just text the word evidence to 44222. But you know what the best news about all this is? Somebody actually did die for you. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when I was in the Navy, I was in naval aviation, so we had to earn golden wings, which were hard enough to earn, but there's nothing more difficult in the Navy or virtually any military to earn than a golden trident. That's what the SEALs wear. Very few people that go through SEAL training actually make it through. Those that do make it through wear that golden trident with pride. It is their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego, just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they passed his casket, they took off their tridents and they pressed them into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that died for them, in their Savior. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put our identity in our Savior, but the world will tell you, no, put your identity in your political party or put your identity in your race. There's only one race, the human race. Or put your identity in your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your sexual orientation or your job or your bank account or any of these things. No, none of those things are ultimate. We're meant to put our identity in our Savior. And a man who was with Jesus and saw Jesus rise from the dead wrote in his biography of Jesus, we call the Gospel of John, that Jesus has given you the right to become a child of God, to put your trust in him. And that Savior not only died, he rose from the dead. And he said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what this implies? If you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. If you don't have Jesus, you are in bondage. And as Austin just sang to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. And then he proved it by rising from the dead. Father, I pray if there's someone here who has never accepted the free gift of salvation that you have provided through the life of your son, the death, burial, and then resurrection of your son, that today would be the day they would, whether they're here in this room or at our other campuses. I pray that today is the day they would accept what you've done because there is no other way to salvation, because there's no other way an infinitely just God can allow unjust human beings to go unpunished unless he punishes someone innocent in their place. And that's what you've done. You've punished yourself in our place so that we could have eternal life. In Christ's name, amen.